If you have your Bible at home, I will invite you now to turn, if you will, to the book of Numbers. That's in your Old Testament. Numbers chapter 21. And we're going to be starting in verse 4, and we will be looking at a message that I have entitled, Finding Christ in the Crisis. And as you find your place, I want to say to you that Christians are no stranger to contagion. A quick study of church history shows that men and women of faith have been steadfast when disease has spread fear and death. In the days of the Roman Empire, it was early Christians that made a name for themselves as people of courage and compassion. For about a 20-year period, from about 250 to 270 A.D., there was a terrible plague that ravaged the world at that time. Historians think that about one quarter of the Roman Empire was killed by that mysterious disease, and yet it was in that epidemic that the Christians stepped forward, and their actions during that time led to an exponential growth of Christianity within the Roman Empire as faithful believers took care of the sick and lived out the hope of the gospel. Eusebius, who's known as the father of church history, actually wrote about that time and how Christians demonstrated God's love during that epidemic. And here's what he wrote. He said, quote, "...the heathen pushed away those with the first signs of the disease and fled from their dearest. But most of our brethren showed love and loyalty in not sparing themselves while helping one another. The Christians tended to the sick with no thought of danger and gladly departed this life after becoming infected with the disease. Let me give you another example. Fast forward to the year 1527. The bubonic plague had invaded Germany, especially the city of Wittenberg, where Martin Luther was ministering. And the call was given during that time for those of means to flee the city and to quarantine. And Martin Luther refused to do that. He stayed in the center of the epidemic. And it was a decision that cost him dearly because his daughter Elizabeth lost her life during that time. But also Luther produced a track during that season. It was entitled, Whether Christians Should Flee the Plague. And in that, Martin Luther gave a bold response. Here's what he said, quote, We die at our posts. Christian doctors cannot abandon the hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties, he said. It turns them into crosses on which we must be prepared to die. Wow. So the reason why our forefathers in the faith responded and acted with grit and grace is because they found Christ in the crisis. And I think that the voices of the past still speak to the church today because it is in uncertain times like this that we must have the same resolve, we must choose worship over worry, 
We must choose prayer over panic and we must live in faith, not in fear. Now, as you turn to your Bible, I hope that you've found your place by now in Numbers chapter 21. And the Israelites understood a thing or two about a plague. Because in Numbers 21, here we find the stiff-necked, rebellious people of God facing a crisis in the wilderness. In fact, they became victims of a heaven-sent scourge of serpents. Now, we've all seen and heard about the dreaded coronavirus, and yes, it's bad, and I don't want to diminish that, but friend, I can assure you that a horde of fiery snakes is much, much worse. Now, the episode that we're going to read here parallels a lot of the national crisis that we are currently facing. It's complete with fear and panic and with complaining and sickness and the paralyzing of God's people. I think about Pastor Warren Wiersbe. He had a great saying. He said that crisis doesn't create character, it merely reveals it. And if that applied to any passage in the Bible, I think it would be Numbers 21 because here we see a crisis and how God's people show their true colors in the midst of this plague. So in this message, what I want to do is I want to show you four lessons about how a crisis reveals what we really believe and the kinds of people that we really are. Most of all, I want us to remember that we ought to be people of power and love and a sound mind because no matter how you feel, no matter what lies have been told to you, no matter what the news says, Christ is here in the crisis. Now, number one, if you're taking notes out there, I want you to see with me that a crisis reveals what we believe about God's plan. What we believe about God's plan. And I'm going to start reading in Numbers 21, verse 4. The Bible says this, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, and there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Verse 6 says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So as our story unfolds, what we see is that Israel's downhill slide began when they became impatient and when they were irritated at the travel itinerary that Moses had laid out for them. Now, let me set the stage for you here. The Edomites. We read about the nation of Edom there in verse 4. You've got to remember that the Edomites were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And they were and always will be a thorn in Israel's side from this point going forward. Now, you need to know about the geography of the area They are headed toward the promised land. And from where they are to where they need to go, the most direct route for God's people 
would mean that they could cut through Edom's backyard and get there quicker. But because of the Edomites' hatred for Israel, they forbade God's people from passing through their land. In fact, you can read about that in chapter 20, verses 14 through 21. So in response, Moses has no other choice but to take the people the long way around. They have to bypass Edom. And the Bible says that it was this arduous trek that stirred up the people against Moses' leadership and against God's plan and God's promises that he said he would get them into Canaan. Now obviously, God had a plan. God had a path. He would get his people into Canaan in his own time and in his own way. But you need to understand that one thing that God is doing during this whole wilderness wandering with His people is He's dealing with the sin in their heart. And that's what we see here. Before they can be prepared for the promised land, they have to have their hearts right. And the only way to purge His people of sin was to send them through a wilderness that was full of sun and sand and serpents and suffering. And the reality is, as you begin to study this passage, you understand that Israel, in their current state of unbelief, was not ready to enter the promised land because greater challenges lay across the Jordan River and in their state of unbelief and immaturity, they weren't ready to tackle the big giants and the other tribes who lay across the Jordan River because they hadn't yet learned to trust God and His plan for them. And you can hear their cries, can't you? God, why did you bring us this way? Lord, if you can deal with the Egypts and the, the Red Sea, if you could split the Red Sea, then Lord, why don't you just take Edom out of the way and give us the easy path up to Canaan? You know, as I thought about that, what's the first thing that we do when things don't go the way that we think they should go? We question God's sovereignty. When we enter a crisis, that's the first thing that we do. We say, God, I don't understand. Surely, Lord, this isn't the path you've marked out for me. There's got to be a better way to go. Lord, why did you bring me down this road? What I want to say to you is that perhaps it's because God knows that we're not prepared for the place that He wants to take us. We're not ready to enter into that inheritance yet because He's still got some pruning to do on us. There's still some sin and unbelief and some immaturity there that He's trying to get out of us. How many of you know that for the most part, the American church today is just as unbelieving and just as shallow as Israel was at this time. We are obsessed with comfort and ease. We love the health and the wealth, the worldly things, such that we are not ready to face the difficult challenges that lie ahead. There are many churches who are not ready to face the challenges that lay ahead. Now, I'm not a prophet, but as I look out upon the spiritual landscape of our country, I don't think that things are going to get easier for the church as we go forward. 
I have a feeling, friend, that there's some tough battles just up ahead and maybe a little trial, maybe a little inconvenience is exactly what God's people need at this time to prepare them for the greater challenges that lay just down the road. There's some churches that are, that are going to have to reevaluate and adapt. Be resourceful during this time. Because God's plan has taken us a different route than where we thought we would be. And maybe there's even some churches that need to repent. Some Christians that need to repent as they see where God's plan is leading us. As we deal with this epidemic, the most basic question believers, every Christian has to answer is this, is God really in control? Nobody wanted to come this way. Nobody in Israel's time wanted to go a bypassing Edom, but yet this is the path that God has laid out for us as a nation and as a people. And I say to you that if God is in control, then surely He must have brought us this way for a greater purpose. I think about Corey Tin Boom. She has an amazing testimony. In her book, The Hiding Place, she talks about how God's path led her through the Nazi Holocaust, and how uh, she spent time in the dreaded Ravensbrück concentration camp. During that ordeal, she lost her beloved sister. She lost her mother and her, her father and most of her family. She has a brilliant quote. Listen to what Corey Ten Boom said. She said, When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. She said, You sit still and you trust the engineer. Friend, we may not know what the future holds, but I know the God who holds the future. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything in between. World leaders may be in panic mode right now, but friend, there hasn't been an emergency council meeting in the Godhead. Uh, the Lord hasn't wiped an anxious bead of sweat from His brow. Yes, everything may be shut down, but praise God, the a heavenly hotline of prayer is still open. Listen, church, if God has brought us to it, He will bring us through it. So, one thing I want you to see is that a crisis reveals what we believe about God's plan. Israel didn't like God's plan. We may not like the plan that God has laid out for us right now. Then number two, I want you to see that a crisis reveals what we believe about God's provision. So there's God's plan and then there's God's provision. Notice here verse 5 what it says. And the people spoke against God and against Moses saying, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Watch this. For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Now, if you are keeping count in the book of Exodus, I believe this is about the eighth time in the book where the Israelites have complained against God or against Moses in some respect. And once again, you can see how the pity party in this text brings charges against the food that God has been providing for them for four decades now. God's heavenly Wonder bread, manna from heaven that He's been sending. He's been feeding His people every day for 40 years through this time. 
And if it wasn't manna, it was quail. When they were thirsty, the Bible says that God caused water to flow out of a rock. And that wasn't all. If you go to Deuteronomy 29.5, listen to what it says. God says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness and your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off of your feet. So think about these folks. They had every one of their needs met by God in some miraculous way. And yet these folks had gotten so accustomed to God's goodness and His blessings that those became burdens. Their familiarity with His miraculous supply had actually turned into contempt. And their complaining was a serious sin because what they were saying was, God, what You've provided for us isn't good enough. That kind of reminds me of a, of a story that I once heard about a man who was uh, big on Wall Street and uh, he was making a lot of money and then all of a sudden it took a downturn, kind of like what we've seen the past few days. And this man, after losing everything, decided that he was going to join a monastery. And so he moved out of his uh, home, out of his neighborhood, and he moved into a rustic, Spartan-like existence there in that monastery. And he had to take a vow of silence when he got in. And the head monk told him, he said, Sir, you take this vow of silence and uh, you're not allowed to speak except for every two years. Uh, every other year you're able to come out and we will we'll allow you to say two words. And so he agreed to that. He went through the first two years. He stood before the, the head of the monastery and he said, All right, sir, you've served two years. Uh, we'll allow you to speak two words now. What would you like to say? And this man stood up and he said, food, bad. Well, he went on two more years and he served that term. Stood before the head of the monastery again and he said to the man, alright, you've served another two years. We'll let you say two more words. What would you like to say? He said, bed, hard. Well, another two years went by and here he was called before the superior and uh, they asked him, do you have anything to say, sir? And he said, I've got my two words. And he said, I quit. And the head monk said, well, that doesn't surprise me because you've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. <laughs> so as I think about that and as I look at Israel's complaining here in our text, let's be honest. We're a nation of complainers, including and especially in the church. Somebody say amen out there in Facebook land. I can hear it. The, the Wi-Fi is too slow. You go to Walmart, there's two registers open, right? And we complain about having to wait to get checked out and yet look at all the bounty that lays in our registers. And we complain after we've just walked through an air-conditioned store and piled our goods up in our buggies. Then there's the complaining in the church. Oh, the, the pastor's sermon was too long. I don't like the music that they sing down there. You offended me. I think I'm going to go sit in my snowflake safe zone with my therapy dog. And we see the kind of complaining that goes on in our society and in the church. And what you understand is that Israel complained because they did not properly value all that God had done for them. 
And I think that right now, in the midst of this situation where we have been deprived of some freedoms and been deprived of some creature comforts, this is a great time for us to think about the faithfulness of God and count our blessings before we ever start to complain in the inconvenience of this situation. Friend, let me ask you, how many times has God put food on your table? How many times has God been there for you in the dark of the night? How many times has God healed your body? How many times has God answered your prayers? Friend, I've said it many times and I'll say it again. If God doesn't bless me one more time in this life, I'm going to be okay because I've already been given way more than I could ever earn or deserve. What I want you to see here is that if God has been faithful in the past, He will continue to be faithful in the future. And if we as the church can trust God for our eternal souls, then surely we can trust that He will find a way to get us through this temporary trial. And maybe our great need is to discover that Jesus is all that we really need. One thing I think that this crisis is going to do is it's going to make us grateful for the simple freedoms of daily life. Some of you out there have never been more grateful for toilet paper than what you are right now in your life. I was, I was talking to a friend today. Actually, it was the other day. I was talking to a friend, and we started talking about all the things that we missed, and they said, yeah, and I miss church really bad. How many of you out there sitting watching this Miss being together with your church family. Miss the worship. Friend, I'm going to appreciate being able to get together with God's people a lot more after this situation because I realize how precious it is. And when it's taken away, it's no fun to preach to an empty church. But that's what we've got to do right now. And we need to appreciate these things. So a crisis reveals what we believe about God's provision. And a crisis reveals what we believe about God's plan. And then thirdly, I want you to see tonight that a crisis reveals what we believe about God's punishments. That's right, God's punishment. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among His people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He may take away the serpents from us. Now some of us need to really read and study verse 6 quite carefully because it says very specifically there, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among his people. That's like a fed up parent. God has brought swift discipline to his children for their sins of ingratitude and unbelief. And some people who read that are they're going to have their theology challenged because they've only been taught one side of the character of God. Let me say this, yes, God is merciful, yes, God is loving, yes, God is full of grace, and I'm thankful for all that, but we also need to realize that God is also holy, and God is also righteous, and yes, God is a just judge. And one of the shortcomings, I believe, 
of modern Christianity is that we lack a healthy fear of the judgment of God. And yet the Bible warns us over and over again, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now don't get me wrong. I am not saying tonight that the coronavirus is an example of God's judgment on our land. I'm not saying that. I have the opinion that if it was actually God's judgment, it would be a whole lot worse because I've read ahead in the book of Revelation. And if you think things are bad now, you just wait till the hinges come off society and there's real chastisement and wrath coming from the heavens. We're just getting a little preview of the panic that's going to take place later on when God really starts dealing with this planet. So don't get me wrong. We live in a sin-cursed earth. We're susceptible to disease and death. And God's people suffer right alongside the unrighteous. This isn't the first plague. It won't be the last plague that our world will ever see. But what I am saying is this, that God uses disease and natural disaster as a way to humble us and to get our attention and compel us to think about our mortality and eternity in a way that we've pushed aside when things are good and the bank account is full and everybody's healthy and the stock market is soaring when all of those things are going on. We don't have a conscious desire for the things of God like we should. So these awaken us to repent of our sin and turn to God. Let me give you an example from history. In the fall of 1866, London, England suffered an epidemic of cholera. And historians estimate during that time that about 5,500 people died in the city of London because of that outbreak. Well, it just so happened that Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers during that Victorian era, was pastoring at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And on August 12th of 1866, he preached a message to his congregation entitled, The Voice of Cholera. And listen to what he told his people over 150 years ago about the epidemic that they were going through. Here's what he said. He said, brethren, let me ask you soberly without fanaticism to consider whether there has not been enough in England, especially in this city, to make God angry with us? Has there not been enough to make Him say, I will walk no more with these people, I will chasten them and send judgment to them? Shall God not visit London for the sins that nightly pollutes her streets, festers in her gilded halls, and riots amid revelry and music? Is not the drunkenness, he said, of England not enough to provoke God to strike us with thunderbolts? We believe, he said, that God sends all pestilence and that He sends them with a purpose. And yet as I look out, he said, the masses of our people do not regard God, do not care for the cross of our Lord Jesus, and have no thought about eternal things. 
That is why it is our business, he said, as ministers of God to call people's attention to God in the midst of the disease and to teach them the lesson which God would have them to learn that this dreaded cholera is just a gentle blow from his hand. And if its lesson is not learned, he may remove the candle of the gospel from its place forevermore. Wow. If that warning applied to London and the people there 150 years ago, how much more does it apply to our nation today? Yet as you go back in this text, you understand that God sent a plague of serpents among His people for which they had no human solution. There was no antidote. There was no doctors. There was no answer. And they finally realized that their suffering is connected to their sin and they come to Moses in their desperation and they say, you've got to get in between us and God. How can we repent and be healed? What I want you to see tonight, friends, is that could it be that God is sending another gentle wake-up call to this wayward nation today? I know what some of you might be saying out there. Well, yeah, preacher, but we're not covenant Israel living under a theocracy. And that's true, we aren't. But I do know that the Bible says... Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The Bible also says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, and that the wages of sin is death. What I want you to see tonight is that God is talking through this crisis just as He did in Numbers 21. He's talking through this crisis today to the world. And He's saying to the world, Wake up! Come to me. Don't you rely anymore in your technology or your stock market or your government or your medical science or the things that your little gods that you think will save you. They won't save you. You come to me and you'll find that I'm full of healing. I'm full of forgiveness. I'm full of mercy and grace. God is talking to the world, but God is also testing the church in the midst of this situation. He's testing our people saying... Alright, are you going to be the people who you say you are on Sunday morning? Are you going to live in panic? Are you going to live in peace? Are you going to live in fear? Are you going to live in faith? Are you going to live out my word? Are you going to be stingy and hoard stuff? Or are you going to be kind and show the love of God to those people who need it the most? You see, what I understand about this nation is that every few years, God gives us a little nudge. He gives us a wake-up call to help us to understand as a people we're not as big and powerful as we think we are. Our government can't help us. Our, our doctors don't have the answers. Our media is in a panic. And, 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 and God does these things every few years to this nation to remind us, hey, you need to listen to me. First it was 9-11. Then it was Hurricane Katrina. Then it was the housing collapse in 2008. And now it's this. And the disasters remind us, listen, that the things of this world are temporary. That life is fragile. It's like a vapor that is here for a moment and then quickly vanishes away. And that we have to be prepared for eternity. And we have to be invested in the eternal things. The souls of men and women and the Word of God. 
And when disasters come, listen, when disasters come, God isn't on trial. We are. We're the ones on trial. Are we listening? Are we going to take Him seriously? Are we going to live differently after this is over? Or are we just going to go back to the regular routine and look back at it and think, man, I remember when we lived through that in 2020. We don't learn anything about ourselves and about God through this. We've missed the message that God is trying to send us. Adrian Rogers probably said it best years ago. He said, God is America's biggest threat and God is America's only hope. And that's true for the whole world. So we see that a crisis reveals what we, what we believe about God's plan. A crisis reveals what we believe about God's provision. Thirdly, a crisis reveals what we believe about God's punishment. And then lastly, I want you to see that a crisis reveals what we believe about God's power to save. God's power to save. Verse 8 and 9. And so the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent (laughs) and live. Praise God. What a passage of Scripture. When God's people finally recognized that it was their sin that brought about the suffering, they repented They came to Moses and said, Moses, we need you to mediate between us and God. And the Lord, yes, He provided the curse, but then God was ready to provide the cure once the people repented. And His solution was for Moses, watch this, to take and fashion a serpent out of bronze and then attach it to a pole and stick it up in the air. And He instructed the people, hey, if you've been snake bit, look upon the serpent of bronze and live. Now the imagery of this is provocative. It's very strange. But that bronze, it was made in a fire of a kiln. It was a reminder of the fiery bite of the serpent that they endured. And then that serpent, it was hearkening back to the original serpent of the garden, Satan, in Genesis 3 when he first tempted Adam and Eve into sin. But that serpent was also a symbol of the means of God's wrath upon His people. And all those who looked upon that sin and who looked upon that wrath, that symbol of wrath, were by faith instantly healed. Now, they may not have realized this at the time, but as the people went through this ritual, that came down from God to Moses, what they unknowingly were acting out was the gospel in the Old Testament. And just so you don't think I'm making it up, we know this because John 3.14, in that passage, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that this was an Old Testament prefiguring of His death and His sacrifice that would come Thousands of years later, and in John 3, 14, listen to what Jesus said. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
He said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Here's what I want you to see, folks. Christ was there in the middle of the crisis. He wasn't in the way that they could see. Wasn't in a way that they could understand. But He was there. And the healing was there. And the power of God to save was there. And friend, if you're looking for Christ today, He's in the middle of the crisis. He's right here where He's always been. Maybe we just haven't had eyes to see Him like we needed. But think about the parallels. God's people were bitten and under a death sentence for sin. Likewise, Romans 5.12, it says this, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We're all under the death sentence of sin. God's remedy in the Old Testament for the punishment of sin was a serpent on a pole. And likewise in the New Testament, the remedy for sin was God's Son hanging on a cross. The serpent was a picture of sin and an instrument also of God's wrath. And likewise on the cross, the Bible says that Jesus became sin for us and He also received the wrath of God that was due us. It was laid upon The body of Jesus Christ. He became sin and He received the wrath. The saving power was the result of faith, not works in Numbers 21. And likewise today, we're not saved by religious devotion or by philanthropy or by righteousness of our own personal account, but it's by faith alone in Jesus Christ. The destiny of the individual was determined by their response And likewise, the remedy for sin today, it's available at the cross for a whosoever will shall come. And think about this. The method seemed so illogical. What? Look upon a serpent and live. And yet, when the preacher stands before the people and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that it's foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jew. Friend, I don't have to understand how it works. I just know that I got saved one day when He touched me and came by and washed my sins away. I don't understand it all, but I believe it all. And I know that the cure of the blood of Jesus Christ still works today just as it did 2,000 years ago when it was shed from the cross of Calvary. Where is God in all of this? Friend, I'm telling you that Christ is in the crisis just as He was in Numbers 21. He's here today. He's saying to us, Hey, I'm here. I'll give you peace. I'll lead you out of this wilderness into a brighter day. I have the power to heal and forgive you. Oh yes, and by the way, it may be inconvenient right now. You may not like the season that you're in, but just know that I'm using this for your good and for your benefit. And when you come through this, uh, you'll have blessings to talk about and stories to tell and your faith will be stronger than it was before. Oh yes, And do be reminded that Jesus is also saying to us, hey, it won't always be like this. Hang on because my return is soon and sure and sudden. And when I come back, there's not going to be any sickness, not going to be any disease or death in my kingdom. He's in the crisis. If you can see and if you can hear, the way that Israel's 
Repentance led to their salvation. Reminds me of a story that I heard Dr. Howard Hendricks tell. He said that he went to India and he visited a leprosy center. And as he was in India touring that leprosy center, he said that the man who was running that asked Dr. Hendricks if he would want to preach a message. And so the day came when he was going to stand in front of this congregation of lepers. And he was going to preach to them. And he said as the time arrived for that morning worship service, he said these people with eroded faces, missing limbs and gnarled skin, just stood up in their little shack of a worship center and they praised God. They sang hymns. And he said just before he was about to step onto the podium to preach to these people, he said a dear lady who had been stricken with leprosy got up in the back of the church and said, I want to share my testimony. He said this dear lady, although her face was disfigured, although she was missing fingers, uh, the disease and, and rats had chewed some of her skin off. She, he said that she got up there to the front of the, the pulpit and she raised up her gnarled little hands. And she said with a clear voice, This morning I want to praise God because I am a leper. I want to thank God today that I was stricken with leprosy. Because it was through my leprosy that I came to know Jesus Christ. She said, I would rather be a leper who knows Christ than to be completely whole and a stranger to His grace. And Dr. Hendricks said, I didn't really have much to preach after that testimony. And maybe the best thing that can happen, that can come out of this whole outbreak in this whole situation is that it would cause some to contemplate their mortality and turn to Jesus in the midst of the crisis and realize that they're not ready to step off into eternity. He is there. He's here where He's always been, with arms wide open, ready to say, I love you, I always have, and I always will.